If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Calling all History Extra podcast listeners. We want to hear from you. We're currently conducting some research about our podcast, so please enter our survey for your chance to win a £100 Waterstones gift card. It shouldn't take any longer than 10 minutes, and as a thank you for taking part, UK residents who complete the survey will be given the opportunity to enter our prize draw for the chance to win one of two £100 e-gift cards to spend at Waterstones. The survey will be available to complete until 11.59pm on Sunday the 4th of October 2020. You can find the link in our episode description. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Listening to today's podcast, you'll realise that medieval eels are a lot more interesting than you might first think. Dr John Wyatt Greenlee has written a feature on how eels were used to pay rents in the Middle Ages for the October issue of BBC History magazine. And our content director, Dave Musgrove, dropped him a line to get the lowdown. Today I am talking to Dr John Wyatt Greenlee. He's written a marvellous feature in the October 2020 issue of BBC History magazine on the subject of medieval eels, uh, which is a topic that he tackled in his doctoral thesis. Now, you might think that's a pretty specific topic, uh, but in my view it is a fascinating way to get under the skin of medieval society and economy. Uh, So that's what we're going to talk about today. Loads of interesting things to chat about. John Wyatt, welcome. Thank you very much for joining joining us today. How are you doing? I'm well. Thanks for thanks for having me. It's really nice to be here. Right. First up, uh, the time we're talking about is uh, circa 1000 to 1300 AD, so the earlier medieval period. And your research, I think, focuses exclusively on England, or is it is it more broad than that? No, it, it was primarily England. Um, it, eels are sort of international food. Everybody eats them all over the world and all over Europe, but this particular project looked mostly at England. Okay. And in your feature, uh, you explain that eels were were used for paying rent during this period. So that, um, if you haven't read the feature, seems like a slightly odd uh, concept. So can you uh, sort of set, set the scene for us? Tell us why that would be the case, please. Right. Yeah. We don't pay rent in kind very much anymore. We don't pay with uh, cats or mice or anything. Um but uh, in, especially in early medieval Europe and medieval England, um, in-kind rent payments were fairly common. There was not a lot of hard currency available. And what there was, especially sort of 
pre-11th century tended to be used not to pay for things, but as sort of the, to sort of trade back and forth between rich people. It tended to be a sort of a, a status symbol as much as anything else. Uh, and so if you were collect, if you're a landlord and you want to collect rent, um, most of the people you're collecting it from don't have money to pay you. And so you take it in kind, you take it in, um, in honey or grain or salmon or herring or eels um, or a lot of other things. But the eels are one of the most common types of in-kind rent in early medieval England. Um, the 1086 Doomsday Book has more mentions of eel rents than any other kind of rent. Um, and they're sort of all over the all over the countryside um, and in really large numbers, which is part of what makes them stand out a little bit. There's just enormous numbers of eels moving around in rent payments in early medieval England. Um, and why eels specifically? Um, there's a there's something to do with with the uh, with church attitudes to to meat eating that drops in here, isn't there? No, there is. So there's there's a the answer to why eels um, is sort of multifaceted. Partly there's just a ton of them. Um, as much as fifty percent of the fish biomass in um, in English and European rivers historically has been eels. So they're sort of all over the place. But there's also, as you mentioned, there's a religious component too. Um, um, there are a number of church holidays, and they increase over the course of the, of the Middle Ages, where you are not supposed to eat meat. You're only supposed to eat uh, fish and things like that. Lent, of course, is the is the big one, um, the sort of the, the 30 days of Lent where you're not supposed to eat meat. And the reason you're not supposed to eat meat is because these are days where you are not supposed to be thinking about carnal desires. You're not supposed to be thinking about worldly things or sex. And there's this connection between... Um, carnal sin, right, the sins of the flesh, and eating flesh, eating flesh meat. Um, uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas makes this pretty explicitly, actually. He says that if eating, eating the flesh of, of an animal makes you think about sex, and that's bad. You're not supposed to think about sex during Lent. So, but fish are okay. Fish are not, you're not supposed to, the fish don't bring sex to mind quite as much as, say, beef. And uh, eels are in some respects, the best kind of fish for this, because the medieval perception of eels and their biology was people thought that they did not reproduce sexually, that they were an asexual animal, that they um, had some sort of spontaneous generation. And so, this is a food that not only doesn't make you think about sex, it doesn't actually have anything to do with sex at all. And so, in terms of theology, it's a great food. So, um, so a lot of these rents were due... Uh, at the start of Lent, they were due to monasteries and other landlords in large numbers at, at the very start of Lent as the as the landlords were preparing for a month where they were just going to eat eel or herring or, or whatever other fish they had lying around. So, um, so that's interesting, isn't it, just in the, in the medieval understanding of uh, eels. And it is quite easy and, uh, and, and funny to sort of snipe at medieval knowledge and understanding of, of, of all these sort of aspects of the natural world. But I think that, that under, underplays um, medieval uh, knowledge, I think, quite a lot, doesn't it? And it's, a, it's quite an easy trap to fall into. <laughs> they didn't know that, uh, that how eels were reproduced. But um, Eels are a pretty tricky, uh, a slippery customer, uh, one could say, um, to study. So, um, what do we actually know about eels' um, uh, uh, reproductive habits? They're really complicated, um, and we still don't actually really know. So, you're, you're right, it's, it is really easy to look at medieval attitudes about all kinds of things and, and feel very superior about where we are. Um, uh, and eels are, are one of those things. It's easy to look at the way that medieval people are thinking that eels reproduce asexually um, and say, well, that's just ridiculous, right? But eels have this really interesting life history where uh, we're fairly certain, but not entirely certain, that all of the eels in that come into Europe and the Americas 
are, are born in the Sargasso Sea, in the middle of the Atlantic, basically. And they ride the, the, um, the currents of the, the, uh, the Gulf Stream around, the European ones ride it around to England and Europe. Um, and it takes a couple of years for that to happen, because they, they can't really swim at that point. They're these teeny little um, translucent leaf-like things. Um, they get to shore, basically. They kind of hang out in the shallows and grow into what are called glass eels, um, which are sort of very small eel-looking things that are still translucent. You can see right through to their their skeletons, which is really cool. Um, then uh, they get a little bit bigger, get a little bit darker, and they're elvers, so they're sort of these uh, juvenile eels. And at that point, they swim upstream to where they're, they're going to live. Um, and then they spend most of their lives as juveniles, um, uh, as what are called yellow eels. Um, well, they're, they'll find a place to live and they'll stay there for somewhere between usually 10 to 20 years, but they can live quite a lot longer than that. Um, but during this period, they don't have any discernible or easily discernible reproductive organs because they're still technically juveniles, so they haven't developed yet. Um, and the reproductive organs don't develop until right before they migrate back out to sea to the Sargasso Sea to mate, at which point they stop eating, so they become really hard to catch. So... Going all the way back to antiquity, people have tried to understand how eels reproduce, but most of the eels that you catch don't have discernible reproductive organs. Uh, they don't mate anywhere where we've, we still have never seen them mate, so we don't really technically know how it works or where. Um, and so they're sort of doing the best that they can. And the idea that they reproduce asexually goes back at least to Aristotle, who dissected eels and couldn't find reproductive organs, um, and who noted that um, dry ponds and riverbanks and things, um, when they got wet again, eels would sort of reappear. And sometimes they're coming up out of the mud. Um, sometimes they're, they're coming from other places. But he, he, he um, hypothesized that they were, in fact, growing out of the mud, that eels reproduced from the mud, um, and that the rain sort of made them grow a bit like plants. Um, it was the best he could come up with. And people sort of ran with that for a thousand plus years. It wasn't until uh, the late 18th century that anybody found ovaries in a female eel and not until almost the 20th century that we found um, testes in male eels, sort of proving that they do in fact exist. So, yeah, it's really easy to, to like you said, to snipe at medieval knowledge, but they're sort of doing the best they can with a really mysterious fish um, that does not lend itself to easy understanding. So we should we should cut these medieval people some slack here on their on their understanding of uh, of eels, and it sounds like they uh, I mean, obviously they had noticed that they uh, they didn't appear to be reproducing in the same fashion that other things do. So that's uh, you know that's that's fair enough, isn't it? Um, so look, your your study period starts at around year one thousand, as I said, and um, that ties in roughly with a with a, a, a event that I love called the Fish Event Horizon, uh, which I've uh, I've written about on HistoryExtra.com uh, once or twice. Um, and basically, as I understand it, that is uh, when there's a sudden onset of marine fishing and a decline in freshwater fish, and that's been shown through bone analysis and uh, and and uh, of fish uh, fish remains and also of analysing human. Uh, bones um so that's quite interesting does is that tied in with your study period do eels fit into this fish event horizon in any way uh to a degree yeah so that's a great first off that's a great term i love the term fish event horizon um it's just it's a lot of fun but uh so the the period i study with eels actually runs from earlier than that um from sort of eighth century and the the 
doctoral dissertation goes all the way up into the 17th century. So a fairly long stretch of time. This particular study that I wrote for BBC uh, History is is a much sort of more focused time period. But yeah, the Fish Event Horizon around 1,000 or so is really interesting. It's this period where uh, the, the English start doing a lot more fishing out, sort of pelagic fishing out off the coast, um, eating a lot more saltwater fish and a lot less freshwater fish. But they're still eating a lot of eels. Eels are just about the only freshwater fish that doesn't have sort of a noticeable decline with the fish of horizon. Though they they keep eating the eels that they've got there. There's not a huge change in the in the numbers um, in the, the big decline in the numbers like you see with with other freshwater fish. Um, and there are. A number of reasons for this, I think. Um, some of it has to do with the fact part of what's going on with the fish event horizon is that there's a continual increase in the number of mills and dams that are being built on inland riverways. Um, and this blocks a lot of reproductive pathways and migration pathways for a lot of fish, but not for eels. Um, Eels have a lot of trouble with big modern hydroelectric dams, uh, but they don't have much trouble with medieval dams. Um, they, as as elvers, they can climb over them. As adults, they can go around them. Um, so they are places where eels get kind of bottlenecked somewhat, but they can deal with them in ways that uh, that a lot of other fish just can't. And so, um, so there's the the blockages that. In, sort of on inland riverways that cause some of the fish event horizon don't really affect eels. So they're still there in really large numbers um, and are really a fairly popular food, um, at least in the United States at this point. Eel is not something we eat very much, and there's a sense that it's sort of this uh, sort of disgusting and, and, and somewhat untouchable food, um, unless you're talking about like unagi or something like that. But, uh, but medieval English people really enjoyed their eels, so um, they just kept eating them. Okay, we will we will come back to uh, to how they may have consumed these eels um, later on in our chat, if that's okay. But as you said, there's um uh, th- th- there's a, a lot of eels involved in this story, and uh, and and some pretty big numbers um, uh, in terms of the rents paid. Um, can you just run us through some of the stats? How many how many eels are we talking here? Yeah, so it a lot. <laughs> um, at the end of the 11th century, so this is counting uh, eels that show up in the, the Doomsday Book and also eels that appear in earlier rents but also reproduce later. So um, so we're pretty sure that they're being paid at the same time. There's more than half a million eels being paid in England every year. It's about uh, 540,000 or so uh, that I have records of. But those records are incomplete. Um, we know that there's there's um, a lot of things going on outside of the Doomsday Book that don't show up. Um, so, uh, so at least half a million eels um, at about 1,100 or so that are being paid in England every year as rent. Um, and those numbers stay relatively consistent for the next couple hundred years, um, which is a real difference in in-kind rents. Um, as over the course of the 12th century, most in-kind rents start to disappear as the sort of monarchs print uh, more and more uh, coins and get them into circulation. And so people are able to pay more and more of their, their rent and buy things with, with coins rather than in-kind things. Uh, but eel rents stay really common up through about the Black Death, really. Um, and it has a lot to do, I think, with uh, with the religious aspect they were talking about earlier. They're still a really important food for during Lent and other fish days. So um, 
a lot of the big landholders were monasteries, and the monasteries especially adhered very closely to to, uh, to religious regulations about Lent and things like that in a ways that that maybe other people didn't have to. It's a professional obligation for them, um, so so they kept collecting rent. So uh, up through through the end of the um, the end of the 13th century, there's still 400,000 or so eels at least being paid in rent every year. And then there's a real big drop-off after that, after the, after the Black Death. It, it, it um, sort of really starts decreasing. In the next century, it's, you know, there's less than 100,000 that I have records of. Um, and it goes down the last, there's a couple that hang on through the 16th century. Um, but at that point, there's one or two that I can find in the, in the entire country. So um, the real big heyday is in this uh, sort of uh, 1,000 to 1,300 range. Um, so, I mean, that is a hell of a lot of eels, isn't it? I remember um, when I was doing a bit of uh, research on uh, the Glastonbury Abbey uh, accounts for Somerset, and I remember seeing a, a, an eel rent payment of about 3,000 eels in, I think it was the mid-13th century, and I remember scratching my head thinking, that's a, that seems like a hell of a lot of eels to be taking out of uh, one little manor. I mean, does is there any way of assessing the impact of this, this level of consumption on the eel population? That is an excellent question. And no, as to the best of my knowledge, it's, it's really difficult. Eels are a really hard animal to get a hold of in terms of uh, archaeological evidence. Um, their bones are really fine and they don't, uh, they disintegrate fairly easily. So it's really hard to get a sense of how many eels are in any one place at any given time. Um, we do know historically that there, like I said, just a huge number of eels in the water. At this point, there are still, you know, a billion or so eels that come into Europe every year as as uh, as glass eels, um, and that's a really big decline um, from where we were 50 years ago. So, uh, my sense is that, um, given the relatively small population of people and the relatively big population that we can suspect of there were of eels, that um, even though they're taking just a huge tons and tons and millions of eels every year, that it's probably not making a huge uh, dent in the population of eels, which is good. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned Glastonbury Abbey. So they do have eel rents on the books, but they also had other, they also got eels other ways. Um, during that same time period you're talking about uh, in the 1250s, the Glastonbury Abbey employed a guy named Robert Mallaby, whose job had a bunch of different jobs. But one of them was um, he boated around the abbot's waterways. And when he came upon people who were fishing eels, he had the, the right to take their the best sticks. A stick is 25, a count of 25 eels. So he had the right to take their best stick of eels and take it back to the abbey. And then the fishermen could come to the abbey later and get uh, a, a small amount of bread and, and some money for it. Um, there were a lot of complaints about this. The the uh, the records of it called the, the fishermen um, clamatory. So people who were like really upset and yelling about this. Uh, but so that's one of the interesting things about the eel rents. The eel rents are where people tend to look at for eel consumption in medieval England because it's where we have sort of the, the the most definite records. But they're really only a part of the story, right? There's all of these other ways that people are, are fishing and eating eels, and like Glastonbury Abbey is getting eels in rent, but they're also getting eels from this guy who's just like boating around and 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 taking taking the best eels that he can find and bringing them back to the abbey you have no idea how many eels that was 
but it was part of his job. <laughs> so just when I was doing that bit of research in Somerset, I, I was chatting to an old boy down in the levels and he was telling me how he used to catch eels by sticking a cow's head, a, a dead cow, obviously a dead cow's head, into uh, one of the reeds, the drainage channels, leaving it there overnight. Eels would wiggle in, he'd pull up the cow's head and uh, and there you go. Um, is that an established method of catching eels or, or how how were they getting these eels in the, in the Middle Ages? Yeah, there's a bunch of different ways you can catch eels, and that is one of them. That actually, that particular method um, shows up in uh, Gunter Grass's *The Ten Drum*. They use a horse head, uh, but it's it's a fairly famous scene in the in the movie that really turns a lot of people off to eels. Um, but yeah, so that that is one way you sort of throw in a decomposing thing, and the eels come and eat it because eels will eat anything: um, fish, insects, frogs, other eels, and lots of decomposing things. Um, they're not terribly picky, and they're happy to be cannibalistic. Um, yeah, so that is one way you can catch eels. You sort of throw a decomposing thing in the in the in the water, and the eels. A, a skull is great because eels kind of get trapped inside the the skull, and you can pull the pull it back out. Um, most of the ways of catching eels, you can spear them, you can fish them with a line. Uh, most of the ways of catching eels, though, are more passive than that. It's uh, where you're setting a, a, a trap or a fike net in the water and the eels can swim into it, but then have trouble swimming back out. Um, so you'd see these at, uh, at weirs, at places where the river is narrowed, and at um, at mills especially. Um, water mills, uh, the... the um, the the overshoot uh, are a really great place to catch eels because they sort of just go over the, the edge in this very narrow space. And so um, mills were a particularly common place where eel rents were assessed um, because millers just wound up with a lot of eels by virtue of having a pond and a dam and a, a really concentrated uh, sort of stream of water. Now, from what you've told us earlier about uh, eels' reproductive habits, I guess that medieval people weren't able to actively farm eels in any way. That wasn't a thing that anyone ever did. No. Um, and in fact, there are... Um, you, you can't raise them from, from young. They don't reproduce in captivity. Um, even still, they won't reproduce in captivity. We haven't, nobody's been able to figure out a way to do it. Um, and because they are happy to eat anything, as I said a minute ago, including other eels, you can't keep them in ponds very readily like you could with other fish. So you can't catch a bunch of eels and sort of throw them all in a pond to, to save for later. Um, there are uh, there are sort of specific uh, uh, pieces of, of advice, <laughs> medieval pieces of advice against doing this, like don't put your eels in a pond because they're just going to eat all the other fish and then they'll eat each other. And then because eels can travel overland if they want to. Um, they don't often, but they, they can. Um, then they can leave the pond too. So they can eat all your fish, they can eat all your eels, and then they can just leave and then you're left with nothing. Um, so yeah, so you can't farm them or medieval people couldn't farm them. And uh, you can't hold on to them like you might for other fish. So if you're going to catch you, uh, eels migrate downstream in the fall, um, the, the big ones, and those are the ones that are getting caught for rent. So they're getting caught in the fall. Um, and then there's a multiple month process of brining and cold smoking them um, to preserve them. And then most of the time, the rents were due in preserved dead eels, not live ones or, or fresh ones. Eels rot really quickly. So, um, so you have to preserve them and it's a multiple month process. 
So that's what I was going to get to actually. So uh, these 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 rents, there these thousands of eels. They're not just being carted off to the to the local lord in a wheelbarrow. They are being preserved and and uh, so so. What's the what's the process? They're being put in barrels of salt or something like that, aren't they? Yeah. So um, it's a it's a relatively well, it's not that complicated a process, but um, it's a long process. So they are. Um, so you skin the eel and you take off its sort of what's called its second skin, its subcutaneous layer of fat, um, and then uh, you can sort of quick rub it in salt. But better is to brine it. So yeah, you put it in a barrel of salt um, for quite a long time, um, a couple of months possibly, and then uh, from there it's either dried, but preferably smoked. And uh, medieval's until the 19th century, actually, most of the people who smoked eels did use what's called a cold smoking process, which takes a lot longer. They're not the sort of modern smoked eels that you might be aware of, where the there's it's got a real savory, smoky flavor, and the meat is falling off the bone. Um, it's cold smoking. Uh, the the takes longer. It's much lower heat, um, and you wind up with a with a meat that is really hard and um, and bitter. Um, and it lasts a really long time. It's not particularly tasty. And so uh, it gets put into stews and other things. You Most of the time, you wouldn't want to just sort of like munch on it um, as, a, as, a, as a snack. Um, but yeah, so most of the rents are being paid in these, uh, in, in these um, smoked and preserved eels. There are occasions where uh, landlords are requesting um, uh, fresh eels as, as rent, but those numbers tend to be much smaller, uh, like... 40 eels or 50 eels or 60 eels. And uh, because if they're live, they have to keep them somewhere, which is really hard. And if they're really recently dead, then you, they can't, um, they don't keep for more than a day, really. And so you'd have to eat them pretty quickly. So uh, but most, of the, most of them are in preserved eels. So these really big numbers are um, sort of, these, you know, multiple thousands of eels are, are, are preserved and smoked and hardened and not terribly tasty, but you probably don't want, you're not supposed to have tasty food at Lent anyway, so it's all right. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. If you want to think about England, think about an eel. And so this is, it's again, one of these places where you can see this real explicit acknowledgement of the fact that the English eat a lot of eels. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions, and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. 
Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. One of the uh, one of the traditional ways of of eels being eaten in uh, in the East End in London is jellying um, jelly deals. Um, is that is that something we can see happening in the in the Middle Ages? Is there any evidence of anyone uh, going to that length? No, actually, that's a fairly modern uh, way of eating eels. That's if if I'm remembering right, I think that's sort of a, a 19th century um, introduction. That says jellied eels. Um, and I'm not entirely sure where it comes from, but I do know that prior to that, um, one of the really popular ways of eating eels in London was still with street food uh, and was uh, sort of uh, fried in, in butter. So you get a bowl of eels and in, in, in hot eels and in, in hot butter. Um, and I just, my personal suspicion is that, um, and there's probably somebody who knows, but I don't, that the jellied eels sort of come out of that tradition. So like you let that cool a little bit and the 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 butter solidifies a little bit and the, the fat from the eel solidifies a little bit and you wind up with the eels and the jelly eels. But as a, like a, as an actual, like identifiable dish, it's a, it's a 19th century introduction. Um, I've tried jelly deals and, and to be honest, sorry to, to any Eastenders who, uh, who love it. I, I, I didn't, didn't go a bundle on it, but did, do, are we aware of any particular recipes that, uh, that were employed in the, in the middle ages to make these eels more palatable? You said, you said they weren't particularly tasty in their raw, um, uh, salted form. So w- w- how did they eat them? Right. Yeah. So, um, so there's, I think you need to talk about two different kinds of eels, right? The sort of ones that you've caught fresh um, and you're going to eat right then, uh, or the ones that have been preserved. The the preserved ones that you're getting in your big eel rinse, uh, because they're hard and bitter and not terribly tasty, um, those, I think, probably mostly wind up getting sort of boiled and put into uh, into stews or other places where uh, you can disguise the flavor with a lot of other ingredients. Um, minced pies are really popular, so um, and these are I think more popular with with fresh eels. So you you sort of cut the eel up into rounds and little bits and put it in a in a pie with a lot of other other fillings. Um, uh, sort of pan fried or, or broiled eels were really common, um, and that's a really easy dish. You just sort of pop it in a pan with a couple of sage or something like that or, or garlic. Um, and then there are some really fancy ways of of of, uh, of cooking eel as well. There's a French recipe that doesn't seem to have made it much to England. Um, it does show up in one cookbook called, but mostly it's a French thing called the reversed eel, um, which is really complicated. So you take the eel and you um, sort of uh, you fillet it. So you take the bones out, you turn it inside out, um, you fill the inside with all kinds of uh, with other meats and breadcrumbs and. Uh, spices and raisins and dates and things. Then you sew it back up and then cook it like that in red wine. Um, so that's a fairly, that, that's a, a much more sort of complicated and fancy way of doing eels. So they, they really ran the, the gamut there. Um, and there's some eel desserts as well. Uh, Romans had a had an eel flan that they really enjoyed. It's sort of a savory flan that also doesn't seem to have made it much to England, but um, shows up in, in European cookbooks in the Middle Ages. 
Now, um, okay, so lots of different ways to uh, to cook an eel. I think if if um, any medieval fans listening to this have heard of, of eels in a medieval context, they might have heard of uh, them and the, with the famous death of uh, of Henry the uh, First dying from a, a surfeit of eels, um, and th- and that's um, traditionally. Sp- seem to be uh, lampreys. I'm not sure, is it lamprey or lamprey? I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um, but um, what are they eels or are they something different? So eel and lamprey are two different things. They're uh, really different animals, even though they look a little bit alike um, and they wind up uh, very close to each other in medieval bestiaries. But um, but they're, they're very different fish. Uh, and it's actually quite unclear as to what Henry ate for his last dinner. Um, so uh, the the story about Henry dying of a surfeit of, of eels or lampreys um, comes from Henry of Huntington's uh, history. And uh, Henry uses the, um, the, the Latin word mirena, um, or merinorum for this, uh, which is a really confusing Latin word because it can mean eel, like a freshwater eel, like we're talking about. It can mean a moray eel or it can mean a lamprey. Um, and this gets really confusing to figure out what Henry and a bunch of other people are talking about because they use the terms interchangeably. So there are places where you can see they're using Morena to talk about lampreys, and you can see it where they are using it to talk about eels. But in the case of the death of King Henry, it's really unclear. Um, often the, the translation is lamprey. Um, as an eel historian, I, I will go to bat for eels on this. Um, it's, it's, but it's really unclear from context. Um, it it becomes a confusing enough problem that um, the the medieval Latin develops the word lampreda um, to to sort of disambiguate, um, but they still use them sort of interchangeably. Is has anyone else attested to have died from eating too many eels? Was it a common problem? Um, no, not particularly. There are there's a story that um, King Stephen's son Eustace died from choked on a plate of eels, but that seems to be a fairly modern invention. That story. Um, there are no contemporary sources um, affirming it. Um, and there's a really fun story about King Alexander of Scotland. Um, he doesn't die from eating eels, but he uh, he. He sits down to serve what he doesn't know is going to be his last meal, but it's his last meal, and it's a meal of of, of eels. Um, and he the the chronicle tells a story where he uh, he makes a joke to a friend of his that like if this is our last meal, at least we'll die with sort of um, with with full bellies and very happy with the food we ate. And then he goes and often rides into a storm and falls off his horse and dies immediately. So there's this interesting connection there. So it was eel consumption. I mean, those are examples of of, uh, of um, high high profile privileged individuals eating eels. But from what you're saying, it sounds like eels were consumed throughout society, but presumably um, uh, the, the peasantry were eating them in a in a less um, exotic sort of way. So uh, they were they were probably just tucking into them, you know, fresh and boiled or whatever. Yeah. No. There's there's. Um, uh, because it tends to be the fact that the, the sort of the rich and privileged people are the ones who wind up in, in chronicles. Um, we don't have a lot of evidence, uh, direct evidence, but it seems fairly clear that that eels were a regular part of peasants' diets. We can tell from uh, sort of DNA analysis from bones and, and all sorts of things, um, and also the way that eels show up in in, um, in sort of language use and, and metaphor. There's a ton of eel metaphors in medieval and early modern England that we don't have anymore. Um, 
so there's a lot of ways you can tell that, that their eels are a really important part of the of the culture, um, other than having sort of the explicit notation that X, Y, and Z people um, ate eels on these days. So, so let's let's talk quickly about sort of cultural views on on eels and how they were understood. Because in the medieval period, um, animals were often sort of anthropomorphized or, or given some sort of um, uh, vaguely human characteristics. And I was thinking um, before we started chatting about there's a fairly famous scene in the Bayer Tapestry where. Uh, Harold Godwinson has just rescued some Norman knights from uh, from falling into the River Cunorn. Uh, and then there's this figure underneath who's sort of seen swimming with fishes, uh, with fishes and eels. And, and kind of their interpretation has been made that that suggests that Harold was in some way slippery and devious uh, because he's there with the eels. So um, is that, I mean, is that is that sort of characterising such characterization something that was going on? Yeah. So, and that's a really old one too. That goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks. This because eels are are axiomatically slippery, right? They're it's part of their their physical nature, and it's one of the first things people notice about them. And there are a ton of metaphors about sort of grabbing an eel by the tail, which is the wrong way to do it. You need to grab them by the head because if you grab them by the tail, they'll just slip away. So the idea that eels are slippery and that you can use eels as a metaphor for slippery people is really longstanding, and it's absolutely at play um, in a lot of medieval contexts. And it's the one that we still have today, right? If we think about eel metaphors in modern English, that's about the only one we've got is this sort of slippery as an eel. Um, but, and that has led us, though, I think, to think about eels in medieval culture as in, in a fairly negative light, right? Because slippery as an eel is not a positive connotation, right, usually. And so when we think back to the way that people are are talking about or writing about or, or displaying eels, um, we tend to think about them negatively. But I think that's unfair. Uh, they're a really big part of the culture. And the sort of slippery nature is, is part of the way that people are thinking about eels, but not all of it. So the scene you mentioned in the Bayou Tapestry is really interesting to me. And I wrote about it in my dissertation. That, um, I think that is part of what's going on. There's, there's this, this idea that Harold is, he's about to make, this. that scene is right before, it's the last scene we see of Harold before he uh, swears allegiance to William an allegiance that he is then going to break. So there's the the idea that the, the eels at the bottom of the tapestry show that he is this, they like said, this sort of slippery figure who's about to 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 make an oath that he has no intention of keeping. But there are a lot of places in medieval English, especially early medieval English, cultural artifacts in in art and um, writing and other places where eels are sort of a stand-in for Englishness in a way um, that they they're tied to questions of identity and so I don't think it's it's an accident that this is the last place where you see Harold as a truly free person it's the last place where he could still legitimately be the king of England and he, it's at a really heroic moment right he's hopped off his horse and he's pulling two um, Norman soldiers out of from certain death in in the water. One of them on his back, and one he's pulling the other out of the water. And so it's this moment of of heroism, and the last moment where you see him as as where he could possibly be the legitimate king of England. Um, and so I don't think it's necessarily a, um, a mistake or a, a coincidence that you get the eels at that moment um, where he's sort of displaying a real Englishness. So I think it's both that he's sort of. I think it's possible to read it both as as sort of being a comment on his his forthcoming slippery character, and also a comment on his sort of um, his English heroism at that moment. 
So that le- I mean, that's fascinating. That leads me on to uh, to a point which I really want to explore with you a bit, um, which is um, it's it's a thing you um, you've highlighted on your excellent eels website. Which anyone who's interested in in our conversation should go and check it out. Which is at uh, uh, Historia. Cartarum.org. Um, we'll make sure that's on the uh, show notes for anyone who uh, who doesn't uh, uh, doesn't get that properly. Um, but on that website, you mentioned that in your research, your eels uh, help us to understand the growth of an English national identity. So is that is that kind of what you're talking about here? That we should be uh, eels and England are somehow intimately connected? I think so. That's part of the argument that I, I make in the dissertation. But I think it's I think it's a fair one. Um, so the, the biotapestry is one of those places. There are a number of places where you can see um, people writing about England and Englishness and using eels as a metaphorical stand-in. Um, so a, contem- a little before the, the biotapestry, um, uh, it's a, so right right around the, the turn of the 11th century, so about a thousand, um, there's, uh, there's a St. Ethelwald, this really famous English saint, um, and his uh, his sort of disciple, if you will, uh, Wolfson, writes a, a, a life of, of, of the saint. And one of the things that's in this, this life of the saint is um, is a story of this dream that Ethelwald has. Um, and he dreams that he's walking along the beach and he sees a ship floating out in the, in the water that's um, mostly eels and some other fish. It's mostly eels. Um, and they're dead. And he uh, he walks up to the ship and, and hears God saying to him uh, to pray over these over these eels and he's like really and God says yeah do it and so he does he he prays over the eels and they turn into men and they come ashore and they're men that he recognizes they're people he knows um, so they're English people um, and then the the dream vision ends with Wolfstan his his disciple talking about how. Um, this is uh, sort of symbolic of the way that people have been coming. Uh, English people have been accepting the idea of, of, of joining monasteries and becoming more religious, um, which was sort of Ethelwald's life goal. He was he was bent on reforming uh, the the clergy and really pushing monastic reform. Um, and so it's this really interesting moment where Ethelwald or Wolfstan is saying that Ethelwald is saying um, to looking at the English people as eels um, and they're, they're dead, but he's sort of bringing them into, into life in a, a more mon- into a monastic life. Um, so that's, that's one of these places where you can see a really explicit um, display of, of, the, of, of somebody like Ethelwald saying, I'm thinking about the English and to think about the English, I'm going to use eels as a, as a stand and as a metaphor. Um, one of the last of these that I re- also really love is, um, uh, Thomas Bradwardine, who was briefly the Archbishop of Canterbury um, and died in the, in the Black Death, so he's mid-14th century, wrote, not too long before his death, wrote a, a short book on um, on memory um, and how you, you train your memory. Um, and, and over the course of the book, he walked you through a number of mnemonic practices. Uh, and one of them, uh, he, uh, he has this, uh, gives you an example sentence about um, the 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 uh, English king attacking uh, the Scottish city of Berwick. Um, so he gives you the sentence, and then he walks you through each word, how you remember each word. Um, and he gives you a lot of different possibilities for all of the different words, like for king, right? He says, okay, well, you may know a guy named King, or you may know a king if you're someone like me, um, or you may think of somebody who looks like a king. This... Um, is mnemonic practice has to has to do with what people have in their brain, so it has to work for them. So a lot of different options. But when he gets to England, he said, "You remember England? Um, remember, think about the king holding an eel." 
and the eel is England. And that's the only descriptor he gives you. That's the only, he's like, that's the only one you need. You're just, you just, if you want to think about England, think about an eel. And so this is, it's again, one of these places where you can see this real explicit acknowledgement of the fact that the English eat a lot of eels. And they're not alone in this. Um, Europeans, medieval Europeans, um, especially along the North Sea, are also eating a lot of eels. But the English really sort of adopt, medieval English adopt eels as a part of their sort of sense of identity. Um, it's it's always tricky to talk about medieval ideas about nationalism because nationalism is a really modern concept and projecting it backwards gets problematic. Um, but it does seem to be one of the ways that they're thinking about themselves as 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 part of a, of a people living in a place. Right. Now, look, um, uh, we, we've covered off a, a lot of eel history here. Is there any any eel topics that we should have talked about that I haven't given you a chance to um, to, to get into? Anything, any questions that uh, you, you really want to have been asked? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I guess I, w- I would say this, I think, um, and this has a little less to do with eel history than eels contemporaneously, uh, modern eels. Um, you know, Eels are a critically endangered species at this point. Um, they face a lot of challenges in terms of uh, blocked rivers from from dams and weirs and climate change and smuggling. Um, the eel, the illegal eel trade to to Asia, is one of the biggest wildlife crimes in the world. Um, and it's really hard to get people interested in eels. So one of the things that I really like about my work is it gives me a place to get people interested in uh, in the history of the animal. Saying, you know what, we actually have this really long and complicated history with eels that's worth paying attention to. Um, because I think it makes the fish more understandable and relatable um, in, in a way that makes it easier to think about it being worth saving in the modern context. So I, I think I, I, I did want to throw that out a little bit, that I think learning about the, our past with an animal is, is a really useful way of, of helping us understand why it matters in the present moment. That was Dr. John Wyatt Greenley. You can find him on Twitter as the Surprised Eel Historian and on his website, historiacartarum.org. You can also read John's feature on medieval eel rents, along with a handy eel currency converter, in the October issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes features on the death of Anne Boleyn, the collapse of the Sikh Empire, the Mayflower and 1980s nuclear panic. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Friday when I'll be speaking to Kate Summerscale about paranormal investigation in the 1930s. Hey.